Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come into your presence knowing that you are God and that we are sinful man. Father, thanks. Thank you so much for reconciling us to yourself through the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, may Christ be exalted. May he be glorified. May he be magnified. Father, allow us to mourn over our sin, but to rejoice at the gospel of grace, which brings us into your presence. Father, be with me as I speak the word and as I preach it. Father, open our, our ears. Father, cut out for us uh, Hebrew ears, like Psalm 40 says. Father, help us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The text for this morning is Psalm 40. Psalm 4-0. Hear the word of the Lord. To the choir master, a psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. As we come to the book of Psalms, I want to introduce you guys to the book of Psalms before we dig into the text. The Psalms, firstly, are the worship book of the Old Testament. When we go to the Psalms, when we read the Psalms, these were actually put to music and sung. And so as we read the Psalms, know that many of these Psalms were sung in the history of the Old Testament worship. And today, these songs are still sung. Secondly, that although they are worship and that they are, are, are artistic in nature, meaning that they're poetry, they teach us things. They are didactic, meaning that the, what we understand when we read the Psalms, we learn about God, we learn about man, we learn about his covenant, we learn about sin, we learn about sacrifice, we learn about all these different things when we look at the Psalms. Just like when we sing um, in worship before I preach. You know, Psalm 130 from the depths of woe I raise to thee the voice of lamentation. When we, when we 
uh, just saying in Christ alone. As we sing these songs, we essentially proclaim the word of God in song to God. We give him worship and praise. Essentially, the, the, the sermon is preached before I ever get up here. And the psalms, or the songs that we sing, are not only for us to praise God with, but they also teach us things about the very nature of God, about the nature of man, about sin, about sacrifice, about theology. And thirdly, you know, we know that they're the worship book of the Old Testament. We know that they are artistic in nature, although didactic. But thirdly, and more at a heart level, I like to think of the psalms as sort of the prayer journals put to song. The prayer journals of past saints put to song. They speak to the heart of men who have loved God and have had great faith. You know, there's, there's this saying, uh, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts, you know, from Dragnet. But what the Psalms actually do is they say, where is your heart? What is going on in your heart in the midst of these things? What is your heart saying, O man of God? You who love God, what is your heart saying? Because oftentimes we can read history, we can read narrative, and we understand the events that took place. But the Psalms actually give us insight into the internal struggle which is going on between a believer and his God. And it is the Psalms where we gain insight, especially into the lives of the men like David and Asaph. And as we look especially at the first group of Psalms, the first 40, 46 or so, we see that David has written the majority of these Psalms. And it is awesome to think that David the great warrior king, who is described as a man after God's own heart, puts his thoughts and his relationship with God down on paper so that we might be able to sing the praises of God and understand his own heart in the midst of great struggle and trials. Now, the question that we have to ask as we, uh, as we come to the Psalms, are, are, there's a couple of them. But firstly, is, is what is the mood of the Psalms? Because oftentimes in the Psalms, they, they're broken up into different categories. Sometimes we have royal psalms, sometimes we have wisdom songs, sometimes we have hymn, song, hymn psalms, which are essentially praise songs. Sometimes we have songs of lament. Sometimes we have these things called imprecatory psalms, which mean that the psalmist actually writes for the destruction of his enemies. And so as we look at the psalm, the question we have to ask is, what is the mood of the psalm? Is this a a, a lament? Is this someone crying out because evils are about to befall him? Or is this someone who is praising God because he's been lifted out of those struggles? And as we look at Psalm 40, it can actually be divided into two different sections. The first 11 verses actually are a hymn of praise to God for delivering him out of trouble. The following, the, the rest of it from verses 12 um, through 17, actually talk more of a lament. Because although David sees that God has given him confidence... In trusting in, in God, he now sees that there is great trouble about to befall him. He sees that his trial is either current or in the imminent future. And so now he switches sort of his mood from one of confidence to one of sorrow, saying, this is what's befalling me. And, but then he switches again at the very end and responds in confidence again. So you have this section of confidence, you have this, this section of struggle, and at the very end, he restates his confidence in Christ. So what is the mood of the song? We sort of go from the, the, confident, uh, the confident praise of the king of Israel to a lament, again, to a restatement of the confidence he has in God. Now, let me say a few things about the author of this psalm. If you look at Psalm 40 and you look at the first section, it says, To the choir master, a psalm of David. We have to ask the question, 
Who is David? Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm just going to read a couple of verses that talk about who David is. 1 Samuel 13, 14 does not necessarily speak about David. It speaks about um, Saul and that God will actually rip the kingdom out of Saul's hands and give it to one like David. 1 Samuel 13, verse 14 says this. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Notice what David has said. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. That's, that's, all of us want to be described as that. All of us want to be described as one who seeks after God. Turn with me in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 36. Notice as David talks to Saul about killing the giant Goliath, here's what he says. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. Notice that David reiterates his confidence. God has been faithful for David from the time he was young, in front of the lion, in front of the bear, and now he is zealous for God's glory because he says this uncircumcised Philistine is no match for the living God, and I will strike him down. David is one who is confident in the Lord. And the reason that we can gain confidence in somebody is because we rely upon them. We have seen them triumph in the past. Um, when I think about um, sports, or when I, when I think about baseball, I'll use a baseball analogy because um, Bill would. But, you know, as, um, or chocolate, you know. I mean, he'll say something about those things. But in baseball, one of the, the toughest jobs is to come in and, and finish off the game as a closer. And some of the best closers have great records. Actually, I think there's a guy named Eric Gagne who is, you know, has an incredible record going right now of just uh, like sort of scoreless innings as well as always saving the game. Like every time he comes in, he pretty much shuts the door and the Dodgers win, as long as the Dodgers are winning when he comes into the game. Now, if he were to give up some runs, if he were to give up some, if he were to lose some games, the confidence that they would have in Eric Gagne would decrease. But in the same way that the Dodgers have great confidence in their closing pitcher, in their relief pitcher, Eric Gagne, David has great confidence in God because God has come through for him. It is amazing to me to see people who are young in the faith as they, as they come forward and they, and they struggle with whether or not what they believe is true, whether or not God will really sort of uplift them in the midst of their trials. And they struggle with this because there's no history there, because they're a new believer. And yet as they grow in their relationship with Christ, as they see God continue to give forth blessings to them, their confidence in God greatly increases. As a matter of fact, it's, it's a blessing for us to sit around with those who have been Christians for a long time. Because as they've been a Christian for a long time and they see what God has done for them for, say, the last 50 or 60 years, their assurance of faith is solidified. Because they are confident that God who has called them and has sanctified them and blessed them and carried them through many struggles and trials will one day glorify them and they will be with him forever. The same confidence that David writes with in Psalm 40 it's, it's, it's the confidence that Christians who have been around for a long time have in God. Let's look specifically at Psalm 40. The first section is, is uh, 1 through 3. 
to the choir master of Psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will put their trust in the Lord. Initially, I want to point something out in in verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Now, those who wait patiently for the Lord are those who have been born again. This psalm presupposes that David has a relationship with God. This psalm, as we read it today, is written for the believer in Christ as he is facing trials and struggles. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. This presupposes a relationship. Because we know that before Christ comes and reconciles us with our relationship with God, we are the enemies of God from Romans 5.10. That he must first reconcile the enmity between us and God and place us in a restored relationship. And it is then in that restored relationship that we can confidently say, as David did in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. As a matter of fact, unless you are born again, you will not seek after God. Only those who seek after God have been born again. We cannot wait patiently for the Lord because our hearts are not in tune with His. The things that God delights in are not the things that we delight in until Christ comes in. Until we understand our own sin and our need for a Savior. And it is only in the context of our own uh, depravity and our need for the gospel of grace that we begin to understand who God is and what He has done. And all of a sudden, the new song, as as it says in in verse 3... He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Now, in the context of Psalm 40, David is, is recounting when God has uh, lift him, lifted him out of a struggle with an enemy or an illness or something like that. For you and I, when we first come to Christ, it's a new song that God puts in our heart. It's a song that says, I love Christ. I love God. I love the things of God. I love the people of God. I, don't, I no longer love the world. I may struggle with that, but I no longer love it. I will no longer buy into the lies of the world. So first, I just want to tell you that Psalm 40 presupposes a restored relationship with God the Father. Now, in verse 2, He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock. As I think about what does a miry bog look like? What does a bad situation look like in the lives of believers? We've been studying 1 Peter with Bill for a while. And turn over with me to 1 Peter. I just want to read one verse. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by, by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the midst of various trials and struggles, and from 1 Peter, our faith is increased. David's faith, as he's writing Psalm 40, is strong because he's seen the past deliverance of God. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog. Let me just, um, let me just read what some of those things might look like in our lives. Okay, The miry bog. Helplessness. Desperation, apparent hopelessness, the breaking point for the overworked businessman, 
The outer limits of exasperation for the mother of three constantly crying children. I understand that one uh, from my wife's perspective. The impossible expectations of too many classes in school. The grinding stress of a lingering illness. The imminent attack of a powerful enemy. When you think about those things in your life, those things are promised to us. We know that those things will come upon us. And those things come upon us in First Peter to test our faith. It's amazing what we find out we cling to in the midst of trials and struggles. I meant to bring a book up with me. I grabbed the wrong book on my, uh, on my desk. But it's a little book called All Things for Good. And in the midst of All Things for Good, it has helped me um, greatly in the times of great trouble and stress. Um, actually, I picked that book up about, um, well, it's probably been about three and a half years ago after Peter Swalm died in a, in a tragic car accident. And I picked this book up by um, Thomas Watson because I said, you know, if all things work for good, how is this going to work for good? And yet one of the sections in it says this. It says our struggles and our trials work for good in this, is that when the world is stripped away, when the comforts of this world are stripped away, we really find out who we are. We really find out who we trust. We really understand what we rely upon. Because when your bank account won't do it, when your talents won't do it, when you can't manipulate the situation anymore, we really come to grips with what we trust in. Now, David says this, that in the midst of many troubles, I have waited patiently for you, Lord, for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock making my steps secure. Um, as I looked in Scripture, um, and I cross-referenced some different words, one of the things I cross-referenced was mud. So for all you preset people, I cross-referenced the word mud. And this is a great picture of being in the pit of destruction in the miry bar. Turn with me to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 38. Because I believe that Jeremiah's heart would say these things. and He would recount Psalm 40. Here's a word of note, too. As we're turning scriptures and you see the person next to you either not following along, help them out. Either by showing them where the scripture is or elbowing them because they're asleep. <laughs> either way is okay. All right. You know, that's how I know that I'm not following Bill is like when my wife elbows me and goes, that was two scripture references ago. You know, you need to wake up now. Okay, this is a way by turning to scripture. This is a way that you participate in the preached word is by turning with with uh, Bill and myself to the text in the Bible. So Jeremiah chapter 38. So um, if you need an elbow to lean upon or get smacked by, um, be liberal with those. Um, Jeremiah chapter 38. I'm going to start in verse one. Now. Shephathiah, the son of Matan, Gedaliah, the son of Pasher, Jukal, the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher, the son of Malachiah, heard the words that Jeremiah was saying to all the people. Thus says the Lord, he who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he who goes out to the Chaldeans shall live. He shall have his life as a prize of war and live. Thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the army of the king of Babylon and be taken. 
Then the official said to the king, Let this man be put to death, for he is weakening the hands of the soldiers who are left in the city and the hands of all the people by speaking such words to them. For this man is not seeking the welfare of this people, but their harm. King Zedekiah said, Behold, he is in your hands, for the king can do nothing against you. So they took Jeremiah and cast him into the cistern of Melchiah, the the king's son, which was in the court of the guard, letting Jeremiah down by ropes. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. Think about this. What has Jeremiah done? Jeremiah has done nothing except proclaim the word that God has given him. He has said, if you give yourself up, you will save your life. And yet the officials who wanted to believe in a lie said, we need to kill this man. As a matter of fact, we don't have time to kill him. So what we're going to do is we're going to put him in a well. And this well was not full of water. It was full of mud. And Jeremiah remained there for quite some time. In the words of Psalm 40, although we're not given, that Jeremiah thought about these things, it would have helped. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Just as I mentioned that, you know, when we think about our helplessness, our desperation, we think about illness, we think about lack of a job, or we think about all the things that befall us and all the trials that we go through, they're there to build our faith. They're there to bring us closer to God. You know, when things are going well and everything's just, again, if everything's going well, oftentimes we forget about God because it's almost as if we don't need him. Everything seems to be going well, but it's in times of great calamity, times of great struggle and trial that we have to rely upon him because nothing else is around. When all the things that we trust upon are stripped away, we find out what we have been trusting in. If we've been trusting in those things and they're stripped away, we go, what is left? And if we then can rely upon God, our faith is increased. Now, in the midst of these things, as as David relates these points in Psalm 40, he has two pitfalls in Psalm 40. Because David says, you know, in the midst of this miry bog, in the midst of great trial, in the midst of great calamity, I will trust in God. For there is no other for me to trust in. And then he says there are two pitfalls, though, that we, as believers in Christ, can turn to that are not God. The first of which is this. Look in verse 4. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. That's the good part. Who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. What we can turn to is we can turn to our own efforts. We can turn to our own devices. We can turn to our own talents. We can turn to the world. I'm reminded of this. Um, you know, I just got back from Romania a week ago. And uh, it was a great trip. We had a wonderful time in Romania. But here's one thing that happened that um, made us think about trusting in God. Uh, we, we, we arrive in Bucharest after about, I don't know, 20 hours of travel. And then we still have another 10-hour bus ride ahead of us. And we arrive in Bucharest. And, and for those of you who don't know, we took Brian Heck, who's a dentist. And we took Dan Smith, who's an optometrist. And they did some amazing stuff there. But um, one of the, the keys was making sure that we got all the dental stuff that Brian needed into the country. So each of us had one suitcase, and then each of us carried uh, with us one sort of box of dental equipment. Like, Brian actually had two portable dental units with him. He could have set up shop in any airport and started doing fillings. Um, it would have paid for part of the trip, um, but he didn't do that. 
Um, so we had all these boxes of medical, I mean, we had drugs, and we had needles, and we had, um, you know, dental stuff. And we had really expensive dental tools, I guess they're really expensive. Um, and so we get all this stuff, and, and praise God, as we're at the, um, the, the conveyor belt, all the stuff arrives. We didn't lose any bags. We flew from here, to, or Kansas City, to Chicago, to Philadelphia, to Frankfurt, to Bucharest. You know, and all of our bags showed up. It was awesome. So all of our bags show up. We have them all in the carts, and we're getting ready to walk through customs. And and so I, I got, you know, this box full of drugs, essentially, you know, along with my suitcase. Um, it's not my stuff. I don't even know what's in the box, really. Don't tell the airport that. I don't really know what, I mean, Brian packed the bags, you know, I, I trust Brian. So we're walking through, and, and the custom agent says, okay, what do you got in there? I'm like, oh, just some stuff for your teeth, dental stuff. And he goes, hmm, open it up. So I open it up, and it, by this point, like, uh, one of the box of, like, caps for teeth had, like, gone awry. And so there's, like, caps all over the place. And he's looking at it, and he's like, what is this? And I go, I didn't just a cap. I need to find the dentist. You know, so I go find Brian, and Brian comes over, and he's talking to him. And he goes, well, where are your papers? And I'm like, well, you don't have any papers. You know, and he goes, don't you have any papers? No, we don't have any papers. I get, here's my passport. You know, I'm an American. He's a dentist. And, and the guy looks at me, and he just starts shaking his head. And then, and then he calls his supervisor over, and his supervisor comes over, and, and um, you ever, you know, she, she was a nice lady, but you could tell that she wanted to be in control, and she just kind of walked over, you know, and walks back, and I'm like, what does that mean? It means it's not coming in the country. I'm like, oh, man. And, and just by way of note, the orphanage is actually about 10 hours away by, by bus from the airport, so it's not like we can leave the stuff in the airport, get the right papers, and come back and get it. So I said, well, you know, can I go talk to the guy who I'm meeting with? And the guy we're meeting with is a guy named Brother Ilya, who has actually sort of planted these two orphanages as well as planted a church in Romania. Um, and so I go out and find Brother Ilya because not only does he sort of know some people, but he also speaks Romanian. And these people's English was not real good. You know, I know I'm an American because I only speak one language uh, in Europe. And so as I'm, I'm talking to these people, they're just kind of talking in Romanian and they're laughing and giggling and and, you know, so I find Brother Ilya, and then I work my way back through the security area and all that kind of stuff. And so Brother Ilya is now engaged in a very lively conversation with this woman. Very lively. You know, I don't know what they're saying, you know, but it doesn't look good. So she's, here's how it goes. Brother Ilya talks, she listens, and she walks away. <laughs> then Brother Ilya follows her, she turns around, he talks, she walks away. She, he talks, she walks away. And it just doesn't look good. I'm like, Brother Ilya, what's going on? He's like, mm, doesn't look good. You know, so all of a sudden, Brother Ilya and this woman go into a back office. And I go, man, I hope something happens. And, um, and yet Brian Heck is sitting next to me going like this. This is really cool. <laughs> and, and later on, I find out because Brian is actually thinking in his head. He goes, I don't know how God is going to do this, but it's going to happen. And I'm like... Don't you hate people who have great faith like that? <laughs> especially, when you, especially when you're supposed to be leading the mission trip. I'm like, yeah, that's great, Brian. I appreciate that a lot. I've been carrying this stuff for, you know, half around the world. If it doesn't get in, I'll be disappointed. And all of a sudden, after about five minutes, we're just sort of in this purgatory. Brother Ilya comes walking in. And he goes, everything's good. Let's go. And they go, I was like, what do you mean? And he goes, everything's good. And so the Romanian customer just goes, welcome to Romania. Come on in. And we go, what just happened? And, and Brother Ilya, I said, Bro- Brother Ilya, what happened? He said, God intervened and it worked out. And, and because of my lack of faith, I then go, no, what really happened? <laughs> and, and he goes, well, here's what happened. Um, I called the minister of health for Romania. And he happened to be in. And he told me 
to give him the, the phone to the uh, customs official, and she said, let him in. So, like, essentially, the health minister for all of Romania was called, and they let us in. And because of my lack of faith, I go, well, that's just awesome that Brother Ilya knows all these people. But Brother Ilya, who has great faith, and Brian Heck, who has great faith, goes, no, that was God. That was God intervening. And God saying, this stuff is getting in. It doesn't matter. This stuff is getting in. Because another psalm, when you turn over to Psalm 20, verse 7. Some of you memorize this. David writes this, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Those of us with little faith would say, the horses and chariots that we would trust in that case would be Brother Ilya's connections, because he knows some really high up people. But Brother Ilya and Brian would say, no, that is God. In the midst of trials, it is an opportunity to increase our faith. That is the first pitfall. We can trust in chariots and horses, but we should trust in God. The second thing that I think is is also very um, destructive is look at verse 6 and 7 of Psalm 40. Turn with me back to Psalm 40. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, verse 6b is, is an odd one to translate because in the ESV it's translated, but you have given me an open ear. Literally, in the note below, it says, uh, ears you have dug for me. You know, when God calls us to Christ, he not only gives us a new heart, but he gives us ears to hear. He sort of takes out the, um, the earplugs that we've had in our head for a long time about the gospel, about God, about the depravity of man, about the grace of God, about his covenants. And he takes those things and he takes them out. And essentially, it's the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Because if you are in Christ, you have been blessed with the Comforter. You have been blessed with the Holy Spirit. And if the Holy Spirit is within you, you now can listen spiritually for what is going on around you. I just wanted to say that because oftentimes I think of, um, uh, I think of Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. For you have taken up my heart of stone and replaced it with a heart of flesh. But in the same way... God not only does that to our hearts, but he essentially um, digs out ears for us to hear, for us to understand his law. And notice what David says, because I said the first pitfall is to trust in man. The second pitfall, which David says, is to trust in religious ceremony. Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. Now, God in the Old Testament does require sacrifice. He requires blood sacrifice to atone for sin. What David is saying here is he doesn't want your sacrifice without your heart. He wants all of you. And as I think about this, um, I'm going to give you a, a book to think about. Um, it's a book called Holiness by J.C. Wilder. I know that Bill uh, said something about this book a couple weeks ago. But this book is a phenomenal book that outlines what it means and how to pursue holiness. I know you can pick this up at Science of Life. I just picked up one the other day. Um, I think there's a couple more there. But it's called Holiness by J.C. Ryle. And it will challenge you. It will challenge you with the way you think about holiness. And let me, let, let me, let me talk about this book r- real quick. Um, 
Because in this book, uh, it's still the definitive work on the distinction between justification and sanctification. But as you read further, it's got a couple chapters um, that talk about the fight um, and the cost. And when I think about empty religion, when I think about verse 6 and 7, and I think about the context of American Christianity, here's what I think about. I think about people who only come to church on Sunday. That the rest of their life is devoid of any um, holiness. Or maybe they come on Sunday and maybe they go on Wednesday. But the rest of their life is no different than a non-Christian. And the reason I know this, that I know that there are people who show up to our church and other churches who proclaim the gospel that this is a struggle for, is because growing up, that's what I did. That's what I did. On, on, on On Sunday morning... From the hours of 9 to 12, I was a Christian, or at least that's what I thought. And then I'd probably go to youth group or some children's activity, and I would live a life of Christ there. And yet the rest of my life was devoid of Christ. It was devoid of holiness, and it could be characterized by sin. Because I did what I wanted, I had made myself into a God, and I, whatever I chose to do, that's what I decided to do. You know, I I tell you that, guys, with with a great amount of sorrow. Because God doesn't want from 8.15 to noon on Sundays. He doesn't want Wednesday nights only. He doesn't want Thursday morning women's Bible study or Monday mornings or whatever Bible study you go to and worship. God wants everything. He wants it all. And if we think that we can come to God on Sunday morning and perform these these sacrifices, as it were, that David's talking about, he says, I don't want them. In the book of Malachi, actually one of the reasons the book of Malachi is written is because the people, after the return of the exile, were going through this ritual of giving sacrifices. And Malachi says, no, those sacrifices are not from your heart. You're giving lame animals. You're giving things that really don't cost you anything. And the cost of following Christ is to give up all of yourself. Not just Sunday mornings, not just Wednesdays, but everything you have. And I'm reminded of that when I read these things, when I read holiness. Let me just read a, a couple things uh, from the chapter on the cost. For one thing, it will cost a man his self-righteousness. He must cast away all pride and high thoughts and conceit of his own goodness. He must be content to go to heaven as a poor sinner saved only by free grace and owing all the merit and righteousness of another. For another thing, it will not only cost him his self-righteousness, but it will cost him his sins. He must be willing to give up every habit and practice which is wrong in his sight. He must set his face against it, quarrel with it, break off from it, fight with it, crucify it, and labor to keep it under. Whatever the world around him may say or think, he must do this honestly and fairly. And listen, There must be no separate truce with any special sin which he loves. He must count all sins as his deadly enemy and hate every false way. Thirdly, for another thing, it will cost a man his love of ease. He must take pains and trouble. If he means to run a successful race towards heaven, he must daily watch and stand on his guard like a soldier on enemy's ground. Fourthly, the last thing I want to say, in the last place, it will cost a man the favor of the world. For the world will not like you, because you will be otherworldly. The cost 
of following Christ, the cost of trusting God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength is not a religion that comes on Sunday morning. That Sunday morning you show up and from 8 o'clock to noon you are godly. It is a religion that is based upon your heart. Is with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You go, I am yours, take me. I want to be holy in all that I do. Lord, give me a sensitive conscience so that I might know when I sin. When we think about sin, it is evil and it is destructive. And God's call to us is to destroy it. The term the old Puritans use is mortify it. To kill it. And my urge and my plea to you, who may be here, and you you may think about Christ on Sunday morning because we make you think about Christ. But you don't think about Him the rest of the week. What do you trust in? Where is your heart? Because your heart is not as that of David in the Psalms. Because David trusts in God. Turn with me back to Psalm 40. The other thing that we need to think about in terms of sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. When we think about sacrifice, when we think about the Old Testament sacrifice, I told you before that God did require sacrifices in the Old Testament to atone for sins. He required blood sacrifice to atone for sins. Now, this particular section of Psalm 40 is quoted in the book of Hebrews. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. If someone's not following, help them out or elbow them. Either one, it's fine. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. And the writer to the book of Hebrews now is beginning to explain how Christ was the eternal sacrifice for all of our sins. He's beginning to um, define what sacrifice was intended to be. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Let me continue on. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood body of Jesus Christ once for all. Christ came to fulfill the law. He came to fulfill the sacrificial law. Because Christ was our sacrifice once for all, all for sins. Here's how it works. Christ comes and leads a perfect life. And then Christ dies on the cross for our sins. And there's a transference that occurs. Our sins are placed on Christ... And Christ's righteous life is credited to our own account. That is the gospel of salvation. That is what sacrifice is. In the Old Testament, blood was required to atone for sins. In the New Testament, blood is required to atone for sins. The blood that is necessary to atone for the sins, the infinite amount of sins of all of you and me, is the blood of Christ. The blood of the very God-man. And if we place our trust in him, he promises us things. He promises us things like eternal life. He promises hope. He also promises us conflict and struggle. These are the promises of sacrifice. These are the promises of the sacrifice 
of Psalm 40. Turn with me back to Psalm 40. I, I wanted to just note on that because actually Psalm 40 has often been used in Good Friday services because of that verse in, he, in the reference to Hebrews 10. Now, as we think about all that's gone on, here's what David said. He said, I waited patiently for the Lord. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see in, in fear and put their trust in the Lord. As David talks about all these things, look in verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts towards us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. And then, as David thinks about all these things, as David thinks about his own deliverance out of, this, out of the miry bog, out of the pit of destruction, as he thinks about this new song of deliverance that is placed within his heart, there's a natural response that David now comes to. Look at what he says in verse 9. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. Now, in this psalm, David is the great king. He is the great king who loves God. And David says, because of your deliverance in my life, I must proclaim your goodness. I must tell everyone in the great congregation of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, our response, because we're not kings, we serve the king, but we're not kings, our response is the same as David. Because if Christ has delivered us from our sins, if God has delivered us in the midst of trials and persecutions and struggles, what then is our response? The biblical response, the thing that compels us now, because of our deliverance, is to tell others. It's evangelism. You can't help but tell people about Christ when God has done something good for you. You can't help but tell people about what you love. You know, it's amazing to me. People ask me, why do I talk about my kids a lot? Why do I talk about my children in the midst of my illustrations? And I go, it's because I love my kids. And my kids are good illustrations of sin. But I love my children. And the reason I talk about my children is because I love them. If you love Christ, you will be compelled to talk about him. We talk about what we love. We commend what we cherish. I mean, I've said that before. If you love Christ, then you will talk about him. I don't want you to do evangelism because you, like, you feel like you have to do it and you know, you're not a Christian if you don't do it. I want you to talk about Christ because you love him. Because he has brought you out of the pit of destruction. Because he has raised you out of the miry bog. Because you have seen God's faithfulness in the midst of your life. And you can't help but tell other people. You know, I love talking about stories about um, going to Romania and seeing this dental stuff get passed through customs. Because God was looking over us and God wanted to bestow his favor and God wanted to increase our faith. You know, that's what we're supposed to do. It's not because we have to. It's because we must. Because we love him. As we think about these things, um, as we think about talking about the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation, there's a shift. That's the first section of the psalm. The second section, I'm not going to take quite as long. Sorry. Um, it's my last time. I don't have a watch. I never have a watch when I get up here. Um, in verse 12, it says this. David has gone from confidence to lament. Okay? He's going from confidence to lament. In verse 12, he says this. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. 
Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who desire my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha and Aha. Do you remember when I said at the very beginning that David was a man after God's own heart? Do you see now that what David is talking about in verses 12 through 15 is, is David is actually talking about a great evil that is getting ready to befall him. He sees that there's danger in front of him, and yet he's worried. And what's really cool about this is that David essentially preaches the same sermon I'm giving to you to himself in the first 12 verses. David, knowing that a trial is before him, knowing that there is a difficulty ahead, goes back and starts with verse 1. And he recounts the faithfulness of God. He talks about the pitfalls that could ensnare him, trusting in men, trusting in false religion, but then trusting in God. David preaches this sermon to himself because he knows that a great calamity is about to befall him, or whether it's an illness, or whether it's a, um, an enemy, a foreign enemy that's getting ready to, to strike him, or somebody within his house. David's life was full of, um, of rough stuff going on, and yet he always followed God, um, at least after he sinned. And yet David preaches this sermon to himself. And it gives me great hope knowing that a man after God's own heart needed to be reminded of God's faithfulness again and again and again. Because I forget. You know, I forget when I'm standing in customs and that this stuff has to come through for Brian in order to do dentistry on orphans, that God is faithful. And I need to be reminded over and over and over. And if it just ended there, this would be a great psalm because David starts out uh, with confidence. He goes to a lament. And yet he responds in verses 16 and 17. Because the preaching of the first 12 verses to himself and then giving his request to God, he trusts in God. Listen to his response. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. You know... For, for those of us, um, we struggle with many things. We struggle with many trials. We sh- struggle with many tribulations in this world. We're promised those things. We're promised a cross before we receive a crown. Expect those things. Yet where's our hope? Where's our trust? You know, David has to be reminded continually that God is faithful. And yet David is a man after God's own heart. Our response should be that of David's. Meaning, and this is what I mean by this. Is that when you wake up in the morning, or when I wake up in the morning, I need to be reminded about who's in control. Because when I wake up in the morning, I think about my day. And I think about all the things that I need to do to get through my day. All the things that I, I'm, all the meetings I have to go through, all the telephones I need to call uh, back, all the stuff that's going on. You know, I, I've got three small kids, I've got my wife, I've got all this stuff going on. And yet, I can so easily get trapped in manipulating everything that's going on in my life. And every day, just as David, I need to be reminded who's in control. And every day I need to preach the gospel to myself. Every day I need to, need to look in the mirror and go, you know what, you're not good enough to save yourself. If you love Christ, you will pursue holiness. You will watch your eyes. You will watch what you listen to. You will watch your mouth. You will hold your tongue. You will pursue righteousness. You will flee from wickedness. 
you will gently restore others who love Christ who are going astray. I need to be reminded of that, not on Sundays, but every day. And when I fail, I pray that God would lead me in faith and repentance. You know, every morning, one of the prayers that I pray is that God would give me a sensitive conscience. And this is what I mean by that, that God would make me sensitive to know when I'm sinning. Because the Christian life will be marked by two things. Peace and struggle. Often we only hear about peace. And that is true. When you believe in Christ, when Christ comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, you will be comforted. You will know that someday in glory you will be with him forever. But the thing that sometimes gets overshadowed is that there will be great struggle in your life. Great struggle. Peace and struggle. And if you are not struggling, you need to think about your soul. Just as David, we need to be told the gospel to us every day. And then we can respond like David in verses 16 and 17. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Let's pray. Father, we know that there are things in our midst, there is sin within our lives that needs to be weeded out and mortified. Father, we know that we do not follow after you. We know that our hearts are far from you at times. <clears throat> Father, help us. Father, as for us, we are poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for us. Father, for those of us who do not know Christ as Savior and Lord, I pray that you would work in their hearts to respond in faith and repentance and that they would pursue holiness with all of their might. For those of us who have responded in faith and repentance at one time, may we pursue holiness with all of our strength and our might. Father, may we not trust in horses or chariots or the lies and deceit of man, but may we trust in you. May we not trust in false religion. May we not trust in just Sundays to get us to heaven, but may we trust in you. May our hearts be in tune with yours. May we love you. May we give ourselves to you. May we serve the King. Father, thank you for Christ, who is our sacrifice, who has brought us to you through his death. Father, may we never forget that. May we dwell upon that this day and every day. Father, help us to proclaim the gospel of grace to ourselves every morning and help us to proclaim it to those who need to hear it. Father, I pray that we would be compelled to share Christ because we love him. Father, may we all love Christ. We pray that you would help us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.